Okay, so good morning, Peter. Thank you for joining me this morning uh, with Restore Our Planet. So just to kick things off, could you tell us a little bit about your your background and what you've been up to in conservation? Well, good morning. So my background is quite interesting. So originally I I studied uh, medical biochemistry, of all things, but I was always interested in evolutionary uh, genetics. That's really been one of my things and ecology. So, you know, I was quite a green student and I wanted to make a difference, as we all do, as many of us do. We really wanted to make a difference. So I then went on to um, be one of the first graduates from the Durrell Institute of Conservation Ecology um, in their master's program. I was very fortunate to uh, get a grant to go there. A young working class lad in, in a sea of, um, you know, high end academia, posh boys, uh, funding themselves. But I, 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 I just fall, fell on my feet. Feet. But I suppose having somebody with such a very a, a mathematical education. So I did computer modelling, and I did genetics, and I did a lot of studies on minimum viable population sizes how genes survive in small populations. So I was doing Monte Carlo simulations. And basically the stuff I was studying was, it, it just wasn't in all those ecologists, you know, it was well beyond their level. And I had to, um, I had to be an entrepreneur to do the work I wanted to do. And that's essentially what I've been. I've been an entrepreneur for wildlife. And I thought broadly, so then I, I went and worked for Scottish Wildlife Trust and some of the other wildlife trusts. And I started fundraising and I found I was quite good at fundraising and managing membership systems and all that. So I went on to do, I got an MA in marketing and I've got an MBA as well. So I'm a real nerd, collected lots of qualifications and did things properly. So I was probably the most successful uh, fundraiser in the uh, wildlife trust movement, uh, raised them many, many tens of millions of pounds with various mad schemes. And then I set up Wildwood Trust, which was because there was no rewilding charity then. We're talking 20 years ago. So at Kent Wildlife Trust, I did, did the Beaver Project with the fantastic John McAllister, who is often not mentioned, but the person who is most responsible for that early um, program was John McAllister and we became thick as thieves putting together um, I suppose Britain's first rewilding project in the early rewilding we went over to um, Europe and found out about what they were doing in rewilding so we were very avant-garde and we managed to get money to fund it and this is where your story meets mine is 20 years ago when um, your wonderful charity was first set up they, your, your, uh, one of your bosses phoned me up and said, we want to fund some projects. Have you got anything for us to do? And I mentioned the Beaver Project and lo and behold, they helped fund that. So um, fantastic! it was, it was very early days and we were very unguard. A lot of people didn't want to do it. It was dangerous. And, and Peter, you've just, you just touched there on um, wilding or rewilding mm. as, as we're about to get into. Exactly. How, how might we define those two terms? Well, we got to, we got to, nature is quite complicated and we can talk about what wildlife is in the moment. But I think when we talk about rewilding, what we're essentially saying is once upon a time before man interfered too much, although man's always had an influence in nature, nature essentially evolved itself and it maximized its own biodiversity. 
So leaving nature alone with all its processes, and they're very complicated, right? But, and we'll talk a little bit about that later, but essentially rewilding just means we're going back to a state of high biodiversity without that much intervention from man. I think wildings come in because that natural human need to be in charge, which is anti-rewilding. So wilding is a kind of softened rewilding. So it allows uh, certain conservation charities, certain groups to feel they are, they are in charge. They are the progenitors of this, this process. So this wildlife is because they are actively wilding, while rewilding is saying, let nature go free and stop interfering. Okay, and can you give us some examples of more So rewilding is, I think, when you, you just look at a piece of land that's just been left alone for 30 years, right? You get some rewilding. There is, um, I've forgotten its name. There's a lovely study just came out a couple of weeks ago on that. They, they left a bit of farmland, uh, the old math, left a bit of farmland back in the 60s, and they just let it go. And lo and behold, it's turned into um, land that's just like the, the nearby woodland with the same level of biodiversity. And you can see how the succession has gone on in that area. You've just created another habitat equal to that around it with no intervention from humans um i think there was some deer culling 20 years ago but essentially they haven't done anything lately and basically the land is now species rich but it doesn't have those natural processes where wilding obviously you've got nep castle i suppose is the perfect example but that's just a a continuation of that process of understanding where if you lower the grazing and you leave the land alone, you get fantastic biodiversity. But having that slightly enhanced grazing by cows and deer and a few horses gives you more, my cat's running around, by the way. Um, <laughs> um, you have that slightly higher grazing akin to what used to happen naturally, but you get a higher biodiversity out of it. So um, there's a good example where NEP is really good, but it's not the Bielowieża in Poland. It is not a true, you know, the level of biodiversity in the Bielowieża. Or what's happened at Chernobyl, where the rewilding there, which is totally um, self-willed, right? That's the word, the buzzword to use, self-willed, is actually higher, but you can get close to it with wilding, where you actually make a plan and start doing it. Right. Um, we should probably say that NEP is an estate uh, in, I forget which county. Sussex. In Sussex, which is basically uh, being yeah. used as a, as a real, sort of quite broad, so I think a few hundred hectares program for for wilding. Yeah, which is three and a half thousand acres, I think. Three and a half thousand acres. Um, Charlie Burrell, the chap who runs it. Um, it's a fantastic. And then I think when we talk about the future of wildlife, we need to come back to understand the economics and the role that NEP plays in understanding how we can do it. So um, NEP's fantastic. That's great. Okay, that leads us on nicely. So how would we define wildlife in broad terms? So wildlife, right. So this is something I've, I've written academic papers on and studied biodiversity metrics and all the, the academic side of it. So essentially, you've got the birds and the bees, right? We've got creatures on one level, biodiversity, 
and you can in the past we've we've kind of classified biodiversity and conservation priorities looking for rare species so we are going to look at the rarest birds some of the rarest insects the rarest flowers and then we're going to spend our time managing that habitat to maintain those flowers right that's that's classical conservation and you put all your effort into freezing ecology and looking at these rarities so that's species biodiversity right and then you can look at it in a bit more and saying it's the interrelationship so now we're moving on to ecology so uh, what is the interrelationship between different animals so the one thing so we can talk about biodiversity being a species count how many species you can look at how many plants in an area nature but then you need to as you study ecology you learn much more about ecology that it's about the water it's about the subsoil the soil the microbes the the little bacteria and mycorrhizal fungi in the in the soil that is interrelated to the plants that then gets interrelated to the insects that burrow into the soil and live on the plants and then what feeds on them and finally you get to the the big grazers above them and the apex predators that all balance their nature so we've got biodiversity and wildlife being a living breathing interrelated thing between all parts of nature and then if we start getting even bigger than that we can talk about um wildlife being the abiotic factors the air you know all the oxygen in our atmosphere was created by life it was created by bacteria mountains how they put out carbon dioxide how sediments go and then you start getting into the gaia side of things where you look at huge processes so wildlife life is all those things so when we talk about life we can't just talk about wildlife the the birds and the bees we've got to talk about the sum total of so, everything so that's sort of james lovelock's idea of gaia the what yes. the earth is like a single organism or uh the movie avatar as some other people might uh i know but that's might, where might, you uh, might see you're, it you're using in that way i i like metaphysics big metaphysics fan so we're using metaphysics to describe we're using sort of religious concepts spiritual concepts to actually just describe a complex scientific process greek in this case of course yeah. Yeah. yeah so i think that's that's where we're we're so people who don't study the science need to express what is plainly evident but they do it in a spiritual manner um i'm a boring scientist so i like to use science. could you speak a little bit more to the metaphysics of Gaia? well a little the, bit the metaphysics of i mean lovelock I was inspired it as an 18 year old by Lovelock's book. I read it when it first came out and I read lots of scientific papers. And at the time as a, as a 18 year old, I was really interested in how do we actually describe life? And I've actually got some scientific things I call Smith's first and second law, right? So what is life? Now I can describe it in a scientific way, but you need to just see it as a metaphysical way as well. So life is energy, right? That's the metaphysical way. It's a fundamental energy. But in a scientific way, what we see is the sun's energy, 
and nuclear energy through the planet, geothermal energy, because we're only hot because um, of nuclear breakdown, fission inside the planet. Otherwise, we'd be a hard rock. Yeah. So that energy has now been trapped by a process that takes that energy and creates complexity, molecular bonds from it. And the way to describe that is negative entropy, right? And if I try to describe what entropy is to your audience, they might get a bit bored, but entropy is, isn't it something similar to sort of disintegration or kind yes of- Yes and no, yes and no. no. So when I say negative entropy, entropy is the universal tendency to everything to disintegrate, right? The cold death of the universe in 20 trillion years, that's all. You know, everything dissociates into nothing. But if we take some energy, we can reverse that process of entropy, negative entropy, and we can create stability. And if we can measure all of the stability of all the bonds, right, between all the organic matter and how likely that organic matter is to survive in the future, that's informational negative entropy, we right. can then calculate what is life? And that's that's my own little thing sitting in a chemistry, in an organic chemistry lab uh, when I was 18, trying to sum up. And then we've got evolution, the second law, my little second law. Evolution is the process of making that negative entry more efficient. Okay. Okay. It's a so good project. <laughs> it's, 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 that's evolution. Now, that's a way of seeing everything. Now, in a metaphysical sense, we can go back and talk about it's all energy, man. Well, it is all energy. It's just learning. It's the processes. It's, you know, it's the old second law of thermodynamics. It's, it's about understanding how energy is produced and preserved to create what is. So what's man doing at the moment? We're destroying that energy. Okay, well, that, that's a, again a nice little uh, little segue to. Um, so, Peter, tell me a little bit about the state of wildlife in the UK. What what's happened? What's going well, on with species loss? And it's the curate's egg. There are some excellent work being done to save wildlife, and we're getting better at saving wildlife. People are learning, but of course, that's only on a tiny few places. And most, for example. Give us some oh, examples nature there. reserves, you know, oh. stuff like that, right? It's like Brown Sea Island, perhaps one, or up in the Kangorms. Yeah, uh, so we're, we're managing certain types of land. But overall, yeah. we're losing wildlife, and that's because we're using the land more intensely. So we've got more commercial forestry, and um, we've got um, more pesticides, more machines managing the land, or we're using that land in ways that reduces biodiversity on it. So it's all land use and land use economics is what I, as we've talked before, that's what I spend my time studying at the moment is why do we choose to use that land and how that then affects wildlife. So overall, most of the scientific data with notable exceptions um, is going for a reduced biodiversity on the grand scale. So all the biomass of England is in Scotland and Wales is decreasing, but we've got notable exceptions where we've stopped hunting certain animals. So, you know, we're seeing a rise in things like red kites, buzzards, 
uh, sparrow hawks. We've we've got some better laws that stop the poisoning of certain animals, but overall our rivers are generally deteriorating. Our land is generally deteriorating, with notable exceptions. And there we come to the 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 this problem where we're not slowing down in the reduction of biodiversity. It's still carrying on. All the efforts we're putting in to save rewilding are not halting the loss of wildlife. We're fighting against a tide of man's abuse of the land and water and air. Yeah. One of the, just on a sort of anecdotal level, I always remember growing up seeing um, stag beetles. So this is early 90s, mm. stag, stag beetles absolutely everywhere. Um, don't see them anymore. Um, yeah. And that's Actually, because we, we, we're not letting... So stag beetles, wonderful creatures, I love them. Um, watch out, they can give a good bite when they want to, especially the females. Um, so they like, their grubs like things like oak that's buried in the ground. So all of our efforts to um, manage land, to make it look tidy, is what's killing. Also, all the pesticides and, and the other crap we're throwing into the land. It's, you know, we're, even though some of those pesticides are not as bad as the ones we used to use, we're still using more of, you know, it's it's the, um, it's the tyranny of farm management, mm. which is maximizing revenue that puts this on. And it's our natural tendency to tidy things up is killing the stag beetle. So there's a perfect example. Um, now you can go and do a project yourself, bury some wood, uh, bury some oak in the ground, and 20 years later, you'll have some stag beetles there. But that's hard. You have to do that, and you yeah. can only do a little bit of it. Something I read, which I think really resonate with a lot of people who don't quite understand the extent uh, um, of what's actually happening, is that with the die off of a lot of sort of beetles and butterflies and what we might sort of refer to as nice insects, um, you essentially get like a, the ecosystem gets replaced with cockroaches, flies, mm. a lot more of the, the things that people are, well. Yes. You so know, we, yeah. invasive pest species the nasty have, have species. when we mess around with the land, we destroy the balance of nature. So you get more, and that goes with plants, you know, Japanese knotweed, Himalayan balsam. You've got rivers going for your signal clayfish instead of your white claw for a crayfish. We've got all these things where we've got invasive nasties that are ending up being not so nice to man. And we are losing that natural web of life that protects us um and we can see and that affects rewilding as well of course because what happens when you start rewilding is often you get invasives uh, pioneer species coming in so you've you've a lot of people think rewilding is rubbish a lot you know some people who are against rewilding because initially you don't get perfection but if you wait a few years you start getting magic do you have some examples of where we, where uh, people can my see front that? Where, uh, my front lawn. My front lawn. That's my my lockdown project has been rewilding my front lawn. And but many places where you start rewilding. So if you go up to um, a hill hill situation, you start getting purple rye grass taking over when you stop grazing, and it's not until you get succession 
that you start getting rid of that. Um, you know, your perfect example of anybody who owns a horse. You know, if you graze hard an area and you pull the horses off, um, you'll start getting um, um, brain freeze. What's the word? Yellow flower. Daisies? Uh, Buttercups? No, uh, the one all the horses. Dandelions? No, 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 no. Um, oh, goodness me. Yeah. Anyway, brain goes. You start getting okay. some plants that can often often be seen as dangerous and be almost like a, a monoculture, okay? Right. Until you get those natural processes until the soil starts regenerating and has the diversity of the microbes because remember a plant is not a plant a plant is a um, symbiotic organism with many things in the soil around it so you need all these processes to re-establish themselves to start getting back so um ragwort is the plant i was thinking ragwort, right so ragwort is, is hated by horsey people because people who don't manage their land properly will get a lot of ragwort it spreads but actually ragwort's a great plant i mean it is poisonous to horses in certain circumstances but it's part of nature's mix you often see it along the roadside verges where that roadside verges hasn't been married you know it's been it's been really mowed back by a contractor and then it's been left. And so you get these pioneer species. So that's a problem with rewilding is learning. You've got to push past the initial problems of reestablishing nature to get that diversity. And you have to reintroduce natural processes like a bit of grazing or a cutting regime to get nature coming back properly. Okay. So, so, um, so obviously there's plenty of, or at least pockets of, uh, successful wilding rewilding mm -hmm. um you said it's obviously quite a slow process but you've painted quite a quite a bleak picture there overall with terms to in terms yes. of overall you wildlife so what what uh what what can be done on, on a sort of big enough scale to actually really make some uh, meaningful impact so you've got to understand what drives land use right why does an individual landowner make the decisions they do and some of those are to do with culture and knowledge. They know what they've done in the past. They know how to get it. But essentially, most decisions are economic ones. A land manager, a farmer, somebody who wants to invest in forestry, and that's going on loads at the moment, the amount of forestry going on, because the government, they see a future where they'll get government subsidies over forestry, even though I'm against commercial forestry for rewilding, it's not very good. They, they re, it doesn't even suck in carbon because you lose carbon from the soil. You might grow a tree, but the soil itself will lose carbon. So it's all this stuff that growing commercial forests for carbon sequestration is garbage. And a lot of the science is starting to back that up. Um, so what can we do? Well, my life's journey has been trying to answer that question. How do we change the direction from wildlife going down to wildlife going up? Now, the best thing we've done is reintroduce beavers, right? By far, because that's created habitat. It's literally robbed some people of land because they've burrowed into a a, a, a bank side taken a bit of land from a farmer and made it into a beautiful nature for free so that's essentially the real battle of life is about land and yeah. occupy it and how much pressure is on that land for human needs or wildlife needs 
Would you like to speak a little bit to the, exactly what beavers do? Quite, quite yeah. remarkable, the effect they have. So my, I mean, I was, this was the thing that grabbed a hold of me as a, as a, as a very young, um, not even, even before I became a naturalist when I was still at university, re- reading uh, Grial and his early ecological observations about Canadian beavers in the Canadian wilderness and people trapping them and making them virtually extinct and how that affected the whole system of water. So what people don't realize is once beaver affected 25% of the whole of um, Britain, if not 30%, because they turned rivers into vast wetland systems, damming, and all this kind of stuff and not we're not talking about giant dams we're talking about lots of dams even even in estuaries beavers can trap freshwater in little areas and so beavers occupy space they re-wet it they they fix the hydrology and then they'll they'll stop there and they'll leave so you get all these successions of different wetlands and then drying out with all the different creatures and they obviously chopped down trees but not all them um one of the other things um, the other things that i loved was early reading was uh, coppice like a beaver because we beavers create these fantastic wetlands coppicing like a beaver was another little observation by um it was the um i'll remember his name at the moment it was the queen's forester who uh, did Windsor Great Park, fantastic chap. He learned about trees, but he said, we're coppicing by getting chainsaws and chopping trees right off at the bottom to create a bit of coppice or, you know, some rare butterfly can live or this rare orchid on the nature reserve. And, so that's, and then you're burning the stuff. And he said, if you coppice like a beaver, eh, you're going to coppice the stool higher up. You might leave one of the poles, one of the, the tree branches up there. So you create diversity. By doing that, the tree gets less stressed, less likely to die. People are burning stuff on nature reserves, which is, is causing injury to root systems, which is really important to allow disease in. So he, he put all these fantastic things, why beaver are the way to naturally manage woodlands and wetlands. And they do it all themselves. Man doesn't have to do a thing. And that's why beavers are wonderful. So they bring back massive biodiversity. I saw... Uh, I think it was a few months ago now that Boris Johnson bought his uh, father some beavers for his estate. Yes. I do um, know about that, but I, <laughs> I I don't want to talk about privileged information. Okay. But I know the, um, let's just say that um, I know Boris Johnson's dad, Stanley, um, who's been a huge supporter of our beaver work for many years. And through some other people who I'm not at liberty to, um, to say, um boris johnson was well let's just say that somebody else did it and he gave the nod but but stanley's been you you know remember stanley johnson wrote the habitats directive he was in the habitats directive was a fantastic now oh 20 years ago i i actually had a speaking engagement with stanley and he told me this fascinating story do you know why the Habitats Directive was such a good piece of wildlife legislation? Far better than anything we had in the UK at the time. It's because he put it on these little Amstrad word processor disks that nobody had. And I remember having one of those 
early word processors and they were a different format so when he sent it for consultation to all the member governments none of them could read it so all their lawyers couldn't put the weasel words in that makes the legislation totally ineffective and therefore it passed with all that stuff on environmental impact assessment having your various forms of protected species and it wasn't modified by government bureaucrats and lawyers to detooth it which mm. meant that in that legislation allowed beavers to come back in many ways it, it, throughout Europe. You know, there the, the was a fantastic piece of legislation. So he's a hero. But um, Stanley Johnson is a, re, you know, probably the man to do more for wildlife in Europe than anybody else. And it's nice that in Amazing. his dotage, he's got some beavers to put on his land. I think that's a wonderful thing. Fantastic. One of the reasons I brought that up was thinking, um, do you have any uh, faith in sort of the, the political class? None at all. Right. Um, <laughs> it's not. When you study political science, which I know you're interested in, you've got to look at what, you know, one of the greatest quotes is asking a politician to do something is like asking the manager of a McDonald's to change the menu. Right, so it's more the system uh, overall rather than uh, because if the they do make involved. any positive changes, they'll be removed. Right. There is a selectorate. You know, the people who select who gets to go into power are, and it's not like there's some kind of cabal with smoke-filled rooms with you know, um, um, with dark evil people. It's just the natural process of people making decisions for self-advantage. And that tendency. Now, I know there's some wonderful people in this government who really support rewilding, and some of the top people, Boris, uh, Gove, the Goldsmith brothers, all those people, totally into rewilding. They're utter, you know, evangelical uh, converts for this. But how are you going to change the process by which people derive their wealth from land? And the whole history of all politics doesn't matter british is as um parnell said the history of politics has always been about who owns the land and how they derive income from the land and that's been a battle that's been going on for thousands of years it's it's all about that and essentially what we're seeing here is who owns the right to earn income from the destruction of nature. That's another reframing of that same thing. So while I think this government is gonna do some wonderful things with to allow certain projects, they give them big funding so their mates with country estates can rewild them. And I'm perfectly happy for that. And but I don't think we're ever gonna tackle the real farming issues, right? Where we can make because I think of it as an economist would think so. If what we need is a politics that will fundamentally change the rules of how people earn money from the destruction of wildlife. Right. That's the only way we can make a real change. And the current political setup is not ready to tackle. And, I, and that means any side of it. You know, the, the politics, I don't care whether you're whatever political party, they're all charlatans. And now and again, you get a chance to do something good, whether they're Tory, liberal or Labour. It was uh, a Labour minister who gave us the go-ahead over his um, 
all of his advisors and, and to allow the beavers first out at Hampfen. You know, it was Michael Meacher who we went to a meeting and he just listened to the arguments and told his uh, civil servants to get knotted and allow us to do it because <laughs> a lot of them were dead set against it. And But now we've got really good projects which are um, happening under Tory. So I don't think wildlife is a political argument. It's whether you can... At the moment, we have to get somebody with power to make a little decision to help wildlife a little bit. What I want to do is to get politicians to make decisions that will make us all want to protect wildlife, whether we want to or not. The Chinese, they have their sort of five-year plans and then Mm. 10-year plans. I think they even have like 100-year plans and 200-year plans. You've just illustrated there what most people in the UK is that politics i think number 10 doesn't plan more than 10 days ahead or, or yeah, something yeah, like there's that there's no plan and obviously in terms of environmentalism we're talking about generations here and i'm not, I'm not sort of saying we should move to a chinese model or anything like that oh far but, from it but how how might we and also not going the other way in making a we should move to you know towards monarchy or or how might we build into the system this kind of sense of longevity and we're not thinking maybe it's also part of sort of modernity and our kind of um, immediate gratification culture but how, how can we sort of re um reclaim that sort of you know um long-term intergenerational uh responsibility do you think well we we have to take decisions out of the hands of people the problem is we're giving decisions to a few people when really decisions should have a much broader base of expertise and knowledge and stuff like that. But really, we want to start taking decisions away from, I'm going to fund this work. So a politician sits there, well, I can go and put 150 million quid to this grant program to allow rewilding. That that makes no difference. 150 million quid's a drop in the ocean. You can't fund the protection of wildlife. That's mad. Anybody who actually really thinks about it will understand that the many hundreds of millions of pounds, I don't know, 400 million, 500 million pounds that are at the disposal of wildlife charities and government programs are not making a dicky bird's difference. You know, they, they, they are saving some, but they're not stopping the loss of biodiversity. The only way we can do it, and if we were talking about Chinese, the, um, the wonderful Chinese politician Sun Yat-sen, who I urge you to read, had this solution so the founder of china and we're talking both communist china and taiwan because he was the spiritual founder of both um systems he is neither left nor right we can look at the great henry george some of the greatest minds in history have all understood that what we need is a force that slowly moves everybody to conserve nature and to protect people from monopoly practices where people are earning money by destroying nature or just mere ownership of something right and that means we need to make it more expensive to destroy wildlife and less expensive to do activities and earn money that aren't destroying wildlife or using land do you think that there's a sort of underpinning ideological gap there like i mean we spoke about metaphysics before do you think that's that's sort of grounded in a sort of new metaphysics i don't know if i don't want to get too kind of well, deep I mean, in there 
you know, metaphysical, metaphysics just means trying to understand something that our poor little human brain don't really grab a hold of. You know, I often say to people when describing our ability to understand the world around us, we are like worms looking at a television, you know, Coronation Street on the television with no ears to hear, no eyes to see, no brain to understand because the world is complicated. And I, I have spent my life studying those tiny interactions between nature and even I am just a worm. I'm just a little bit better educated worm than other people. And when we come to politics and human interactions, so the, the real fundamental problem, I think, is this issue of self-advantage, right? People making decisions for their own benefit, where they get a bit of extra cash, they get a bit of an easier system um than other people and that's that's to do with uh, what darwin talked about you know you have individual selection and we have group selection and we forget that group selection is by far the most powerful force in human endeavor it is the groups that we form and how we identify with the people around us and then how we seek self-advantage is the fundamental problem and we need fundamental systems to take that group self-advantage away and to make the group both nature and all of people. And that doesn't mean communism, because I, I think, you know, you've got to understand that even communism, you had a free market, even communism, you, you had environmental destruction on a massive scale because people were making decisions again for immediate self-advantage of party officials, commissars, whatever. You need a system that suppresses that tendency for humans to exploit nature. And the only way I think you can do that is just taxing. Stop taxing people's wages, fat, and change it to a simple, you tax land, the land values, because that's a monopoly, and you tax destructive things like pesticides, oil use, carbon, all that, can, not in the rubbish way we're doing it at the moment, where we're giving carbon credits, so we're just effectively creating carbon monopolists of the future but we just put a base tax and this works. The Tory, I mean, the, uh, the Tories have already done this. The, the, um, the landfill tax was one of the finest bits of legislation we had many moons ago. It's pressed when you tax, you know, rubbish going into tip, you actually reduce it. It puts a cost. It's far better to put that tax at the start of the process than the end. So if we tax oil, we, we have more efficient cars. We looked for other um, issues. If we start funding, say we're going to fund a wind turbine, you'll find out there's loads of fraud. And I know lots of fraud. One of my mates is an academic in, um, in wind turbines. And there's all kinds of fraud where you get grants. Forget about grants. Just tax oil use. Then you'll get the most efficient wind turbines, the most efficient solar cells. But you're taxing the bad things that go to make them. So people will use their natural ingenious harness, humanity's positivity, our genius, our drive to do things. Instead of our drive to own and control, right, which is untaxed. So we get richer and richer people owning more and more assets, monopoly assets we need to tax the environmental destructive forces and that allows people to work out themselves how to use resources less how to use land yet less and of course that shifts the margin 
So the other topic we have to do is what's the margin at which we use things like land or whether we pump oil out of the ground and put it in the atmosphere. We need to shift that margin down. And that means if we tax that, the margin goes down. So more land as we wild it, it will come to a point where Lando says, oh, sod it, I'm just going to leave this. And the best thing to do is that it rewilds. Um, and the, the guy pumping the oil out of the ground says, I don't want to pump any more because it's costing me more money than it um, is worth it. So we're going to pump less and then we're going to find ways to make more fuel efficient houses, cars, all that just by taxing. So it's, it's having that force pressing down on our abusive nature. Are you optimistic? No. Because humans have never done that. The, the history of humans is to be taxing nature less. And, you know, if you go back in our history, we actually had a system of land value and monopoly taxes. It was called Hydage under the Anglo-Saxons. It made Britain into the, the most economically advanced country in the world at the time. We had the highest standard of living because we taxed land based on the land's productivity. So Anglo-Saxon, you said? Anglo-Saxon. So this is, about what, like a thousand years ago? 1100? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. more or less around there? Yeah. So we're talking, uh, yeah, 1200, 1100 So can you ago. talk a little bit more about Hydage? Well, Hydage is a system whereby a thane, um, a, a local, you know, people would live in villages. Chieftain. And, yeah, chieftain thanes, right? Yeah. And they, the king would say your land can produce X amount of um, value and you can provide that either in money or in uh, troops for the army, right? For when we need to fight. And if you start off, you can see that under that system, the, um, the rental value of land is a good way to describe it, the unimproved land made up all our taxations. That means nobody got taxed for actually doing productive work right you know learning how to make swords anything that wasn't taxed it was just the the, the tax of the, the the land it didn't it didn't go to the thing yeah he had a nice big house you know he had nicer stuff but he didn't monopolize that for himself it went to provide public services which is security law all that kind of stuff but since that time all the taxes on monopoly have reduced and been reduced placed by taxes on productivity right that means land becomes cheaper to abuse but much more expensive to acquire so that means land values go up and up and up and that's what's happening in the economy at the moment where you have high land price we're seeing that with forestry we are we are trying to grab a bit of monopoly for ourselves but in grabbing that monopoly we're going to use it to the nth degree so i don't have a, a happy tale to tell for the future on overall economic processes until we put real costs onto people who abuse nature pizza i think that's a nice place to stop um where, where can people find you and your work if they're looking for um, social media i, I or... do some yes i do i've got a website peter smith rewilding just type that in um i'm doing some really cracking projects but unfortunately i had to sign ndas about them at the moment so um they're amazing projects so there's some fantastic ideas around on big rewilding around the world you know huge um 
but I can't talk about them, which is really annoying because they're really excited. But if you, I'm happy to give advice um, if anybody wants to, um, and free, I give advice to lots of various rewilding projects and happy to do it for free. And if you've got a commercial project, you can talk to me about a commercial relationship, but really I'm not in this for the money. Um, and the other things I'm doing is I'm making some documentaries. So I do a lot of uh, filming and photography, which is what's my hobby. We'll have to have you back and talk about those and maybe a little showcase what you've been up to. Peter, thank you. Thank you.